All right, episode 24 of the Gorilla Social Work Podcast. We're going to start off. We got an email question from Jessica. She says, hi, guys. I really appreciate your podcast. I was wondering if it would be possible for you to talk more in depth about two things. What goes into making a safety plan, and how do you address clients who have mental illness or their own histories of trauma? Thanks. So safety plan. Yeah, because we talk a lot about safety plans. So, like, what is a safety plan, I guess, would be the question. So, so there's a couple different aspects about it. So the safety plan is, um, the way I kind of counsel clients on this is a little bit of, uh, you don't, um, you have to think of risk in two different ways. So there's risk obviously from the client to the community, but there's also risk of the community to the client, not as if they're going to offend on the client. There are certain situations though, that increase the likelihood of violations though. So if they're finding themselves in situations that, um, like for example, we, we steer clear of any events where the primary consumer of whatever that is, is, is a child, right? I mean, it's pretty straightforward. Um, you're not going to be going, there's, there's some big, you know, just strict liability ones that we would never approve, uh, lagoon boondocks, uh, you know, if you're not from amusement here, park, pools, amusement parks, yeah. yeah, Disneyland, amusement parks, stuff like that, just because they, they those have been identified as the you know the primary uh, consumer of that product is a child. Likewise, if they have like an alcohol clause, um, we, they, we can't approve an activity request to go to a bar. So the safety plan would kind of spell that out of of what are the risks that put you at risk for violating the terms of your probation or parole. But also, what are the the actual risks that would be present at this location? And what are you going to do when those things happen? Um, And we're not fools. Um, Clients, I don't suspect, ever keep these in their back pockets. But it's a good um, written commitment. I don't want to call it a contract because I doubt it's like legally binding. But it's a a kind of therapeutic exercise where I've signed um, an agreement that here, here's the risk factor and here's the specific intervention that I'm going to use to offset this risk factor if it, if it tends to be present at that time. Mm-hmm. Is that about right? Yeah. yeah. And then I was going to say to add to that, uh, typically if, if they were going to go to some type of activity where there might be children present or an inordinate amount of children present, they have to have an approved supervisor accompany them. An approved supervisor is somebody that, uh, that is involved with them. That is a, you know, an adult with not really a criminal background that has sat through a therapy session with one of us to go over what their offense was and all the different rules. And, and the sponsor typically has to sign the safety plan that the, the client writes up saying that they're aware of the risks and that they commit to providing line of sight and sound supervision for whatever it is that's going on mm-hmm. along along with uh written statements from the parents of those children that they're aware of the clients that too charges and they're okay with them being around the children and then typically um we have a contingency plan attached to that too so like kind of like if you know if if there was an emergency um i don't know your approved supervisor has a heart attack what are you going to do in terms there's a backup plan that if if all else fails or if somebody who wasn't listed on there shows up what are you going to do and most of the time that's just leave and go back home um, and then they typically present that to group therapy That's right. and then they get feedback from group members and a group therapist and then they submit that over time. So it's, it's pretty well vetted that these are not, um, we want to make sure that these are not high risk situations. Um, any more on that? That's the, what was the other question? Trauma. So the other one was, yeah. How do you address clients who have mental illness or their own histories of trauma? That's a big chunk of most, our, yeah. that's a lot of our people. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the, so 
we our treatment program is based on cognitive behavioral therapy, which is shown to be effective for a lot of the you know depression, anxiety, different different things like that that our clients present with. And then the the trauma we have, I mean, we've we've kind of changed up our curriculum from time to time with the, the different approaches that we have to help clients work through trauma. Uh, it's it's on an individualized basis, but we do have you know especially for some of our maybe someone that's like acutely affected by PTSD or something. We, we certainly address that stuff up front because a lot of that, um, you, you help a client work through their trauma and that, that in and of itself helps reduce their risk a little bit. Uh, because some of our guys are sexually reactive based on the stuff that happened to them. Yeah. And so helping them work through some of that, uh, and come to some degree of resolution, uh, in turn, at least decreases, risk to some degree uh, right it, it fits in with the uh, the risk need and responsivity model so if i'm targeting criminogenic risk in other words i'm, I'm targeting risk factors that are designed if i if i work on them they're designed if i target them then the, there's a less likelihood this guy's going to continue to engage in criminal activity the needs factor is okay where is that where's the most treatment needed what are the highest needs in terms of where he's showing the most risk the responsivity is some of the interference stuff so if i have really high levels of trauma it's going to be hard for me to address my criminal thinking when I have this, you know, huge, huge thing of trauma that I'm dealing with at the same time. So we'd want to address the trauma to then allow that person to kind of move past that. Same thing with mental illness. It, it, for example, let's say somebody's psychotic. I can't have a cognitive behavioral therapy session unless that person's stabilized on medications. Or if they're depressed, they're unlikely to bring back a behavior chain in their next session. So we mm-hmm. would address those because they're a responsivity issue. They're unable to, to really engage in the treatment program unless that's addressed one way or another. Awesome. Who'd you guys? Who'd you guys freaking interview without me? His name was Dallas. Oh yeah, yeah. How'd it go? I think it went great. We missed you, man. I bet it sucks. This yeah. is gonna be the worst podcast ever. Well, Dallas saved it. <laughs> oh, Dallas yeah? saved it. Yeah, he he pulled. He saved Justin and I from you know just blathering on about nothing. He kept us on track. Uh, he, he he was uh, he was my client, and I helped kind of helped him work through the program. He's a I I, I feel good about him. Uh, solid guy, talented. Um, Justin, I don't, uh, what, yeah, this this was our villain to vic- is it villain to victory? Villains to victory. Villains to vic- to victory. Yeah, and let me say something too. We're at ten thousand eight hundred downloads, which is killer because we were at ten thousand at the beginning of June. People need to subscribe, though, okay? And give us ratings, by the way. Please. Please, okay? So I, I get you're doing the download. That's awesome. Please keep doing that. But subscribe and give us... It, it, boosts our, um, it boosts our rating, and then other people see this, and then that'll just continue to perpetuate, and we'll continue to get feedback and improve and make these podcasts better. So please rate us, give us some feedback, ask questions. We're totally willing to engage in those. We're not above it, you know, at this point. Um, <laughs> for now. Yeah, yeah. for now. Uh, yeah, we will get yeah. saturated, then we'll have problems. Um, we'll forget but, about all of you. Yeah, no. No, but please do so, so we can kind of boost our ratings, and then, and then uh, we'll be able to spread the word to more people, so... Thanks. Cool. Let's hear from Dallas. As quick as I've seen you get it all set up. I know. We're getting so used to it. We're getting so good. All right. We are rolling, by the way. Off and rolling? Yeah. Dude, we are uh, maceless today. I know. I don't know what to do. No, usually he kind of picks up the slack and, well, maybe mainly, mainly just talks the entire time. So, <laughs> yeah, we'll have to guess we'll have to step up our game. We have a we have a guest here. Name is Dallas. This is a part of our villains to victory segment, part two. 
vermins to victims or vermins to victims <laughs> <laughs> that'll be a new one we'll have to start that i don't know vermins how that's to go. victims yeah <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah no yet uh we were kind of going around about the name the i've been wondering about that actually so i'll ask you right out the gate dallas like you know the the idea of the villains to victory segment is just kind of creating the like a comeback story type thing right it's just i kind of wondered like do you I mean, even in a former life, like being referred to as a villain. Well, it's more like Frankenstein's monster, really. Frankenstein's monster. I don't know about a villain so much as an anti-hero. So anti-heroes to... Because I think the reason we were talking about that, the quote-unquote villains to victories, the whole idea, like we were talking about right before we started recording, we were talking with Dallas about, yeah, like... uh, how do we paint a different picture in a sense of show what's more of like the normal side of things? Because there's that the stereotype or the uh, societal perception of everyone being a monster. Everyone's the worst case scenario. Everyone's stuck with this for the rest of their lives, which we all know is not true. So it's how do we bring more of like a real life image to that, like a real life portrayal to that? And talk about that with people, and I think that was the idea of it. But yeah, are you are you were, Jeff? Were you asking is that like? an insulting term well, yeah, that's, yeah that's what i was wondering yeah. the word villain um, but again I, I think 90% of it was we were looking for some clever alliteration yeah like, victory villain is, yeah. Uh, virus from vi- virus virus to villain <laughs> <laughs> well the positive what else yeah. besides victory would be a positive from virus to well you said anti-hero what, what, what's a positive that starts with a from anti-hero to anti-hero to awesome from asshole to anti-hero it's like worse to like a little bit not as bad. I'm thinking from monster to magnanimous. Uh, maybe that's a stretch. <laughs> just, make, just make it ultra confusing. Yeah, we don't even know what the word is. We'll stick with villain uh, to victory, okay. I guess. Yeah, <laughs> that's pretty accessible. Yeah, now, now that we have that settled, does it offend you though to oh, be considered a villain once upon a time? God no. All right. God no. I Fair mean. Enough. That's part of the whole owning your past thing. Is that, so Jordan B. Peterson, I don't know if you guys are familiar with oh, yeah. Jordan. Yeah. Yeah, he's like the the champion of beta cucks everywhere. <laughs> yeah. He yeah. says the, yeah. You, you can't actually do good until you know the the monster that you're capable of being. Yeah. You can't get to heaven without going through hell. So to speak. And when he's talking about that, by the way, kind of the be aware of the monster that you're being, he, he actually encourages you to have the capacity to be a monster inside you. And I, I think he's talking more about like if you if you're capable of bringing about evil and then you follow your values and choose not to, you know, then. Well, I don't know what what is what is kind of the idea behind that? It's that you're more well-rounded or whatever. If you if you're capable of savagery. Well, how do you know you crossed a boundary like in a forest? There are invisible boundaries everywhere. The wolves stay over there and the bears stay over there, but there's no like hard line in the sand. So you have to cross that line in order to realize that there was a line there to have crossed. Right. Yeah. And uh, one, I, I guess it's good for us to talk about 
you know, monster and these different implications. And when Justin originally brought up the idea of monster, it's maybe specifically to the archetypal image of sex offender, right? Oh, that's scary. That, that society has, right? Yeah, that, well, it is scary, right? I mean, sex offenses are by and large something that we are trying to eliminate from society. Well, you see the picture on the news and then like, I don't know if you've ever been on the news for anything or in any sort of media. They never get it right. I, hmm. It's it's weird. I've been in a couple of newspapers and well, in terms of like this. it's always at, like out of context and they they paint it in the wrong right. light. So yeah, you've never met that person and all you get to see is their mugshot, which is probably their worst picture ever. Mm-hmm. It's not like their mom gets to bring in the high school photo and be like, "This is my boy," but it's always that guy. It's never my son or or you know my neighbor or yeah. my my girlfriend's boyfriend or you never get to know that person and then find out that they've got the demon. That's well, that right there is what, I mean, as you probably know from having done, you know, treatment, a treatment program with me is that I, I'm a strong believer that to, you know, I'm trying to help clients, you know, separate a client from what they've done, you know, separate the person from the behavior they committed. We, we've talked about it on previous podcasts and, you know, hopefully that's something you felt during uh, your tenure with us. But what, what I was hoping maybe we could do is rewind a little bit and maybe go back to those monstrous days, Dallas. Maybe tell us a little bit about, well, I guess maybe lead off with what your charge was, when it was, and then maybe we can delve into some of the darker spots of your life, kind of what was happening with you at that point in time. Um, so the big scary name that they say in court is the sexual exploitation of a minor sexual exploitation of a minor it's kind of the that's kind of the catch-all second degree felony term they use for well child pornography as as well as a variety of other charges as well right it's a blanket term sure there if you i I haven't looked at the statute in a while but there's like 11 different charges that qualify for sexual exploitation well yeah i was just gonna say you know not that we're saying any of them are like or okay or anything but if you're not familiar with that or anything like this in this area and you read that I think most people will jump to one conclusion. They, they tend to think of the worst case scenario there, the worst thing there. So, yeah, when you get into, like, a legal coding or, like, court coding and stuff like that, then they end up, it's just like the term sex offender. How broad is that term, actually? Us, us three know, kind of being involved in this. But, yeah, most people, when they hear that, though, think of one thing. And it's, it's the same thing with that. So you're, you're putting that on job applications or rental applications and all that, and I can't put a number to it, but I just most people will read that like, oh my gosh, and yeah, they automatically paint a picture in their head of how this person probably is and how they're going to be. So, oh, I was just, no, I was just going to say what. So what? What specifically? I mean, so the the legal charge was sexual exploitation of a minor, which again is a second degree felony, which is one to fifteen years prison commitment is the the sentencing guideline, but what, what was the actual behavior that you did that landed you that charge? Um, so I was in a really low spot in my life and I was feeling pretty bad for myself. So I was using a file sharing service called LimeWire and I was seeking out, um, basically what happened to me when I was a kid. How much do you, uh, do you want to share about that? Um, go ahead and ask me some questions. All right. Um, well, let, for, first off, let's make sure we um, hammer down the actual behavior itself. What, what was it you actually sought out on LimeWire? So I was looking for uh, girls around 14. 
girls around 14, 14 15, yeah. 16. Year olds. And then what, what year was this and how old were you at the time? So uh, I got charged in 2009 and I was about 25. Okay. So 25 years old and you were looking up girls around the age of 14 years old. So, I mean, it's clearly an inappropriate thing, but you, you said that one of the motivations was what again? Can you go into detail? Oh, on um, that? yeah, I was trying to, trying to get you know chase the dragon so to speak um so i was uh victimized by my stepsister when i was i don't know maybe six years old i don't feel like a victim because i loved her and i realized what an inappropriate relationship that was so she was my stepsister so my mom married her dad and we were you know close but she figured out how to play adult games and we did a lot of that. How old were you at the time? I'm uh, about six. Six, and she was, I'm guessing, fourteen. Correct. Yeah, I'm no detective, but um, so uh, you, you just said something. I think that's really um, interesting about not feeling like a victim, and so that's something that uh, I, I I think that a lot of a lot of people that you know society would deem to be a victim could actually relate to. I mean, obviously there's. There is this, this side that everybody knows about this, the, the traumatized, you know, scared to go outside, scared to talk to men type of victims. And then there was there was you who at six years old getting uh, doing adult games with a 14 year old. Um, well, what was it a, like? So that's that's definitely a sexually inappropriate behavior on her part. She would be the perpetrator there. Um, but, and so te- by technical terms, you're a victim. I would, I would never make you define yourself that way, but like, um, what, what about that interaction made you not feel like a victim? Um, I knew she, well, it sounds weird when I say it out loud, but she had my best interests in mind. I mean, it was as best as a child can understand love. Right. So it felt like love to you, you know, and, and then it, how do you think that influenced your so when you said chasing the dragon i mean i think i know where you're going with that but if you could connect the dots a little bit for the listeners well it was too early for somebody to realize their sexuality and um that having been the first you know the first experience um no other experience ever feels like the first time so it takes increasingly more and more and more to get you, you know, high. So. I appreciate that explanation. So I'm going to run an explanation by you that I when, I, when I hear situations like this, whether the person I'm talking to is, you know, the victim of such behaviors or the perpetrator, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to explain how I explain it to other clients and you tell me if I'm anywhere close. So what, what I say is that, you know, the, the human body is sexually responsive at a much younger age than I think uh, people are willing to willing or wanting to acknowledge. You know, we're evolutionarily speaking. Yeah, evolutionarily speaking, and well, even before that, like like obviously evolutionarily, we're geared towards uh, being interested in sexual reproduction around the around the start of puberty, right? You know, and uh, the the body still responds like that. I, I mean, I. There's probably, I don't know if there's any doctors listening to this, they're probably screaming at their radio right now or whatever, but like 
from what I understand, the, the body can still respond and send pleasure signals at a very young age. You know, maybe the body's not capable of reproduction, but it, it sends these pleasure signals. And again, sometimes that, uh, that when you're, you know, six years old, you said you were six at the time, right? Um, sure. Yeah. Ish. That's, that's young kid, youngster. You were young. Sure. You were really young. You know, you're, you didn't know what the hell sex was, or certainly didn't have the type of understanding that you, that you have today. So you have this super rudimentary, whatever a six year old might happen to maybe know about sex. And then, you know, you have a, an older person that's a family member that you probably loved. Well, you trust them and you trust develop a a relationship. Yeah. Trust. You develop a relationship. Um, it, it, it sounds like, through a combination of that making you feel comfortable. And then at six years old, having that sexual light switch switched on maybe a full six to 10 years before, you know, kind of when you'd be maybe more physiologically ready. It, 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 it definitely leaves an imprint in a, in young, in a young developing mind, an imprint the same way that a lot of, big things do when we're at a young age, but when it's something as powerful as sex, when it's something that we don't really have the, the cognitive capacity to make sense of, and it's happened with somebody that you loved and trusted. You crossed a few wires, crossed a few wires. Yeah. And so, if we could like kind of set that aside for a second, cause I'm sure we'll wind back around to it. So then you know, we fast forward and you're 25 years old and, you know, you have this kind of this first initial sexual experience that from which to compare all others. And that being the initial one, I mean, are, are you saying it was, was it more intense or just being the first one? It was stands out the most or, well, so it having been the first, it was, you know, the, the watermark, the, the, the gold standard. So, um, but I pull uh, your mic in a little closer. So can. adult yep. consensual there you go. pornography is fine. You know, just like regular porn was great. And that worked for a long time. And then you start digging and then you start seeing weirder shit. And then, you know, you keep digging and then suddenly, you know, your hygiene goes straight out the window. Like you're feeling so bad for yourself. You f- click on something and it gives you a thrill. And then suddenly, you know that's all that gives you the thrill anymore and then you dig deeper and deeper that way and then again you know you get quote the feels on another stranger more different thing and there's like no limit to the depravity and then finally you figure out there's this peer-to-peer sharing system and the floodgates are open well yeah and inhibition is out there oh. yeah yeah so, but i was i would like to make the point that i was doing it to escape human interaction well that's what i was wondering because i was going to go back to how you were saying like you eventually got into that when you first started to seek out right around that age range was that like trying to resolve anything or was that you were saying escape is more i was trying to get away from something uh yeah so there's i mean there's like a handful of relationships in my life then very few um and i was like i said i was feeling pretty bad for myself i just made poor decision after poor decision and I wanted to stop inflicting myself on other people. So I would basically just go to work and go home 
And when I was at home, I was drunk and porning. And when I was at work, I was showing up later every day and I hadn't showered. I hadn't brushed my teeth. I wasn't combing my hair anymore. I wasn't doing laundry. And like suddenly the, the SWAT team, literally the SWAT team showed up and they had the battering ram. If I hadn't answered the door, they, they were in ready to swing it. Like it was. So you, yeah, I guess before, cause I mean, the, the stuff you're talking about right up before the point you got busted, I think's uh, really good to iron out a little bit. So you, so I guess that for listeners listening to this, you know, Dallas kind of outlined being at a really low point. He mentioned his hygiene going to shit. He mentioned the social isolation, and then that that all compounded with drinking. How often were you drinking, Dallas? Every night. Drinking every night, and then like drunk every night. And you're using porn in a verb sense. Porning, yeah. <laughs> You've always been a fan of that phrase. But what? Explain. Like, well, we'll come back to porning in a second. I want to make sure I capture this thought before it leaks out of my brain here. And so, yeah, you you're you're seeking an escape route as all humans do again, whether we're, whether it's positive or negative, we all kind of look for ways out. You know, before the podcast started, we were talking about video games, you know, it's a great release, you know, it's a, it's nice to kind of go somewhere else into another world and be a superhero for a minute. But you, you, you were, you were in a bad spot though. And you said you were showing up later and later to work. These are all signs that we try to point out to clients, as you know, you know, the, the, the types of things that lead to much graver decisions. And so as you're going through this process and as you're starting to go from adult pornography into more and more depraved things, you Dallas, since I've known you and I've, I've known you for a while now, um, you've always been a super intelligent, bright, pretty morally grounded dude. So I bet you had to tell yourself something to give yourself justification to, to look at underage pornography, to look at, um, you know, like a 14 year old girl. And yet, I don't know if you can think back that far to remember what it was you told yourself to make it okay to look, but. Oh, sure. Just the ultimate justification. I'm not hurting anyone. Okay. Okay. So in your mind is not hurting anybody because somebody else this is your rationalization, and I'll, I'll give you a chance to maybe share your understanding of the the effects of child pornography in a minute here, rather than steal your thunder. But at that point in time, uh, your your view is somebody else produced it. it this is uh, this happened probably in Russia somewhere. Uh, it's not anybody I know. I didn't produce it. I didn't distribute it. I'm just downloading it. Who's it hurt? That that was about where your mindset was. Uh, sure. I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth, man. I that's just, yeah, that's better than I could have said it. Well, okay. there you go. Just the internet, I think, especially going back to like the LimeWire time stuff like that, because I use that, you know, downloading all kinds of music. I quote unquote shouldn't have been downloading Metallica, <laughs> but uh, sorry, Lars. Yeah. So, but I think it also created this really false sense of privacy 
too at the time, which I think we've come around more now to understand where our data goes and who can see it and who can access it and who's tracking things. But I think there was also when the internet was rolling up, getting up and running, gaining popularity, I think it was also just, eh, it's just in my room. It's just on a screen, not realizing pretty much just about anybody can see this or see what's going on here or that I'm, that I'm accessing whatever it is. The level of secrecy involved with that is just uncanny. I mean, you guys covered that on your your most probably two episodes ago on pornography. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, you guys said it best there. I mean, Mace going on about, you know, you don't even have to walk into that sleazy store down in Ogden. Yeah, it takes all the, a lot of the effort away, too. Yeah, the secrecy and the effort. If it's like a phone or a tablet or a computer, I can pretty much get that immediately. And I think it's pretty private. I think no one really knows about this. Um, I'm not sure if think is the right word yeah because you're not thinking when that's going on under the illusion yeah you're not secrecy for you did that spill over into other parts of life too outside of just watching porn were there other like work or other relationships where that played a role that's a pretty hairy dirty secret to be keeping from everybody i mean sure and you know every time you look at somebody else you're just like that guy's a sex offender because i'm a sex offender Mm -hmm. so yeah you you have to project the monster onto society too in order to just live with yourself so in referencing what you were just saying about like thinking like i don't know that i really was thinking did you was it hindsight being 2020 feel like it was kind of an autopilot sort of thing like you were just Absolutely. just going yeah mm-hmm. complete limbic man you know that's uh I think we talked about kind of the way the brain systems work as well in previous podcasts, but yeah, certainly, you know, the sex drive is not in the rational cognitive processing part of our mind, but it's damn well critical that it should be right. You know, we have to, we, or we at least have to make sure that we have that cognitive governor on our more primitive drives. But it's, I, I think that again, if we don't take into context, all the stuff you just told us about where your life was at the time, I think that just kind of have it solely being this primitive drive kind of misses the mark as well. Right. Because you were sort of like what you were doing, if worded another way, is that it's a manifestation of you working through your own trauma in a very dysfunctional way. That's succinct. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's what's happening, right? It's right on the nose. Yeah, it's it. you weren't calling it trauma. Maybe you still don't feel like it is trauma. You know, when we, when we envision trauma, again, we think of like tears and fear. And yours was, I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but more, at least more pleasant than the, I don't know if pleasant's the word either, but not, not the traditional sense of trauma. But, you know, as a six-year-old, you were most certainly uh, put through something that you were definitely not developmentally ready for and your behaviors in 2008 might have been a manifestation of that I mean, and you get to take responsibility for it and i know you do but it's it, it, it's hard not to call that trauma and the society wants to say that maybe you know i i, I think that most people would say that a six-year-old boy getting abused would be trauma but it, it, there is kind of that trope about boys can't be sexually abused that maybe some people would still look at six-year-old Dallas and say, Hey, you know what? That's, that's the way it should be. Teenage girl welcoming into a manhood. I mean, I think that's a pretty dark way of looking at things, but I've heard worse out there. Worse ideas expressed. 
It's a fantasy for some, I'm sure. Yeah. You were in a dark spot, though. Didn't feel like a fantasy. Oh, no. I mean, I was simple, poor decision-making. I mean, it was the worst decision I've ever made, but it led to the the unwanted but necessary consequences that made me who I am. That being the SWAT, the SWAT team mid-stroke with their battering ram. <laughs> I want to talk about trauma. That's actually going to tie into the question I was going to ask you. Can you, like, elaborate on going – so we're talking about you being an autopilot, right? It's just kind of going through the motions and getting into some unhealthy stuff. Obviously, you mentioned the battering ram sort of moment. But for you, in terms of your personal growth, whether it was in therapy, what, what moment – or when was it that you can recognize where it started to hit you as far as, yeah, maybe I was on autopilot, maybe I was escaping some things? That was towards the end of my treatment, really. I was faking it for a long time. It took me seven years to get through all of this. Mm. I've, I really screwed around a lot. I did not learn fast. Yeah, explain some of that because that that that's been one of some of the more puzzling stuff. At having worked through you, as how much how long it took you, considering that I'm aware of what you're capable of. It turns out I have a problem with authority. All right, tell us a story, man. Like you don't have to say names or necessarily, but I mean, like you so. Can... I started on the treatment light program, and it's like it, treatment less calories sort of thing yeah they they didn't (laughs) they didn't send me up the creek i mean they gave me a paddle and a golden parachute and they're just like look man just jump through the hoop and you'll be done oh and i didn't i didn't i never stopped messing around with all the pornography and the alcohol and came right down to a polygraph and i spilled my guts to the polygrapher and they counted it as a fail Mm-hmm. So they slapped me on the wrist and put me back in the same chair. Here They reset my golden parachute. And guess what? I did it again. So this time they sent me up the creek. They put me, at, uh, put me in jail for a long time. So did you feel like you were learning pretty early on? Like if I do jump the hoops or if I do tell the truth, that's actually going to hurt. Like, that's actually going to make things worse. That was what I was so afraid of. Yeah. Is, like, the, with with the the gravity of the consequences, it's hard to tell on yourself. Oh, yeah. It's like, look, I am a screw-up. That's what got me here, but I keep screwing up. I, was, I couldn't just say that to the people that wanted to hear that mm-hmm. because that's part of the program. It's like, yeah, you're not going to do great at first, but – the the fear that like that gives you to tell on yourself and then find out that it's okay like everybody screws up mm-hmm. it's just getting past that telling on yourself it's like you you got to be honest you got to be honest yeah i think there's that, that i appreciate you saying that cuz that's that's usually what i tell the guys i'm working with or in groups is like i know it's easy for me to sit on this side of the room and be like yeah just tell the truth just be honest obviously knowing well on your end yeah there's potentially a lot more consequences hanging over my head and i do think that is one of those you just kind of have to walk that path yourself to know that yeah i've got to say something in order for me to be able to work through this and and actually move on from it because everyone in the world can tell me that but until i've actually done it and saw like okay it actually can go well like i can actually feel better that i can actually start working on putting this 
behind me. Yeah, until you're the one that actually goes through it. It really doesn't hit home until that moment when you have to just basically a level of vulnerability. I've got to be able to kind of put myself out there. I don't know what the response is going to be to this, but I kind of know my other approach isn't really working here. I've got to try something different. How many times do you want to hit yourself with that hammer? Mm-hmm. you got to do something different. Yeah, and expect that, well, this time when I, when I hit myself, it's not going to hurt me, though. Uh, and keeps doing the same damage. And a decent therapist, you know, they're gonna they're gonna back you up. They're gonna understand all of that. So, you know, I I, I think that I hear you saying that you you didn't dare pull the trigger on being honest yourself, um, you know, and maybe because of your own personal issues that you had to work through and your problems with authority. But like when you you mentioned when you have a good therapist that it. Well, I guess, I mean, you kind of alluded to that it gets easier. Is that, so does that mean that, like, is, if you could rewind back to when you first got into treatment, is there nothing that could have been done with the treatment that you were being offered? Like, how much of it was you and how much yeah, of it like, was Yeah, they, like, could they have changed their approach? Was there something they could have done differently? Or do you feel like it was, for you, hey, I just wasn't quite in the spot at the time, and maybe I needed to put myself through the ringer a little more before? Yeah, they were just unwilling to call me on my bullshit. Mm. Yeah, I I could tell. What about that's helpful for you, like, being called out? What about that is helpful? Well, it makes it obvious that you're only lying to yourself. I mean, you're not slipping it past the PO, you're not slipping it past the therapist. Do you have like a specific times that come to mind where someone was able to call you out? Cause I know on my end of things, I have a tough time calling somebody out. Like if I'm working with a client or even just like a friend or a family member, I have a hard time, maybe the non-confrontational side of me calling someone out because I feel like, Oh, it's going to kind of hurt the relationship or I'm going to kind of hurt how they feel about me. I don't want to be the one to call them out, but I do agree with you. I think sometimes we just need that. Sometimes you do need someone to, to kind of call you on your bullshit, so to speak. Like what do you, can you think of specific times that that happened and it kind of opened your eyes? So not specific times, but like, even if you're just like twisting their tits, you just put the screws to them, you know, a little bit yeah. just to see them jump. Yeah. But I don't know. It's up to you guys to build the trust in the relationship. So, But but sometimes I do think trust can come from that. Kind of all of a sudden somebody pointing something out or kind of calling me on something. There's obviously a finesse to it for sure. But it's good to hear you say that because I know on, on, on my end of things, I tend to worry about it maybe a little too much where I, I purposely won't call someone out because I'm like, well, I don't want them to feel attacked. I don't want them to feel belittled. Right. But at the same time, maybe I'm doing a little bit of a disservice with that if I'm not calling some things out. I, sitting across the table from a Viking might do it. <laughs> Referencing <laughs> Jeff's beard. You're saying yeah, I intimidated yeah, yeah. you into confession. <laughs> That's my therapeutic tactic is looking scary. <laughs> Hardly. Oh, uh, all right. You're a teddy bear. I know it. Well, here, I mean, here's the thing, like, and it may, maybe you don't have a specific answer, but you, you know, you were talking about how, you know, being honest is important and how, you know, kind of what Justin was, I think trying to flesh out of you, but there's, potentially going to be quite a few clients that listen to this and maybe other therapists as well. So, I mean, you've already given me the chance to like timestamp the, a certain spot in this conversation to go back and have my clients that are, uh, dragging their feet to listen. Hey, look, former client of mine says a way to get through this is to actually risk being open about stuff you're struggling with. But 
I mean, maybe there's not a specific best way for a therapist to do it, you know, and then uh, then it's jump out and say, you know, like, like one thing that I do um, or have started doing, I don't know if I was doing this while I was meeting with you, Dallas, but every session I'll say, you know, when was the last time you looked at pornography? Have you followed the conditions of your probation? You know, it's, it's like a yes, no, like a five question checklist. It's actually at the start of our session notes, but was I, was I doing that with you when I was working with you at the very, very end? Yeah. That's right. When you started doing it is when I was checking out. Okay. But yeah, just making them say it, you know, making them lie to your face basically. If, yeah. if they are, I mean, got to give them the benefit of the doubt, but yeah, that'll eat away at your soul. You do you mind if you and I go into the the end of your treatment trajectory with with us? Okay, um, I did my best to repress that, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> um, and stop me if I ask too much. But you 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 had a I meaning. I have to go into details about it. But you had a a hiccup towards the end of treatment. But it, but it was a very it was a conversation that happened between the two of us. Of course it worked out happily ever after, but I mean like what, what was that like for you? Do you know what I'm referring to? When I pass failed my polygraph. Yeah. So yeah. elaborate. What do you mean by yeah. that? I got a pass and a fail on a polygraph. You know how it asks you uh, twice. Uh, you go through the questions once yeah, yeah. and then you go through the questions twice. I wasn't comfortable with the way that the, Oh, God, this makes me sound like such a... <laughs> it's just, when he said pornography, it, like, it triggered me because sure. I'd been... That's, like, my number one... Well, I'm even meaning before that, man. Like, because you went, like, ultimately you did get, like, you, you were deemed to have passed the polygraph, you, and you did, and you're out. I mean, before that, you'd, you'd lapsed. You'd looked at pornography, and... You weren't caught. Your probation officer didn't catch you. Uh, you, you came and you told me, and I don't remember. I'd have to like look and dig through my old notes to find it, but it it really was just the start of our session. I think I was just probably bullshitting with you like usual, like we do at the start of our sessions. I was probably apologizing for being two minutes late, as I was every single session that I met with you. Um, and you just sort of came out with it, and you told me something that. I, I can imagine was difficult to tell me. Well, that's basically what I was saying about before. It's, that's uh, towards the end of my treatment. It's something in me just didn't want probation to be in charge of my life for the rest of my life. And it's like there was an obvious path forward and you had been, you know, your foot was in that door and you're showing me the way. It's just it was totally up to me to just just own it and move forward and be done. And so if you're listening to this, if you're a client listening to this and Dallas, if you, if you, if you want to help me clean up the details, I will, but I, I think this is important stuff. And so Dallas did come forward. This was maybe a few months before you'd finished, maybe that you'd admitted to what you did. You Sounds know, right. You you'd talked about it. And my approach, if you remember, was since you had told me, I'd, you know, I, I, I did tell your probation officer, but the conversation with your probation officer was, Hey, look, you know, uh, Dallas, since he's been in treatment with me, he's done really, really well up until this specific date that he chose to look at pornography. And then there, we've had a, a a period after that that he hasn't looked. And so for, I think I said for 90 days, we're going to focus specifically on 
shoring up whatever it was that allowed him to kind of go down that path again and have him take a polygraph. And if he passes it, we're finishing him up. Is that how you remember it? Yeah, that sounds yeah, you you went to bat for me, basically, is what you did. You composed the email. You took control of the narrative in a way that was, wasn't going to reincarcerate me. Right. But it kept me in treatment for three more months. Yeah. And we focused our treatment on my problem. Exactly. And, and, and what do you think the X factor was that allowed me to go to bat for you? Well, it was the honesty. Right. It was the, yeah, the directness. If I were to have got received a call from your probation officer saying, like, hey, uh, I went and searched Dallas's house. I found this, this, and this, and these types of things. Was he talking about this with you in therapy? And my answer is no. Well, I can't really say much to your benefit. I can't say, well, but therapy, it seems to be working other than that he's lying to me this entire time. <laughs> you know what I mean? But that wasn't what happened. That Unfortunately, some other clients of mine have gone that predictable route. You have done that yourself before. I did that for six years. Did that for six years. Yeah. You, you finally, you took that chance and it's, it's, uh, it's worked out. I mean, you were at least able to get your life back and not have, I know, corrections breathing down your neck, but here's the deal. Here's something that, and Justin, you can kind of help me with this too, but I think it's important that you explain what it is you dig what it is that you did to get your life together like what what makes you who you are today contrasted with 2008 Dallas what's different about your life well i started by forgiving myself and then i asked other people to give me a second chance i would have nothing in the world without a second chance i feel like everybody deserves at least a second chance. So you give yourself a second chance and then you ask other people for that. And then you clean your room. I've been reading a lot of Jordan Peterson. I've got it That's on. Good stuff. I've got it on audio. Yeah. Yeah. Explain what you mean by clean your room, man. Cause I'm with you, dude. Well, <laughs> it's a reflection of yourself. I mean, if everything in your house is in disarray, then everything in your head will mirror that. And you mentioned it back in 2008. Where was your hygiene? Oh, it was non-existent. How did your room look? How did your sink look? It would pain you for me to describe it. <laughs> Use your imagination. Yeah. Yeah. It was the worst. Probably looked like what you and I used to live in back in 2000. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Back when Justin and I were Couldn't be much worse than that. <laughs> yeah. 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 So your house looked about like ours. Okay. Ca ca yeah, yeah. Carry on. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so, yeah, clean your room. So, I mean, there's not going to be any surprise inspections, but, I mean, are, are you you look good. Your you. your head is uh, freshly shaven. Well, at least nice. It's all nice and uniform, at least. You, d you mentioned you weren't styling your hair back then. I mean, some things have changed in the last 12 years with your hair, but. I had hair back then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Giving you shit, bro. But, yeah, you, you, you look good. You know, I, I don't smell you from here, at least. Well, yeah, I, it's it's work. It mm. is. It's constant work. But how else are you supposed to attract a mate? How else are you supposed to make friends? You know, what are you are you trying to alienate people? Yeah, and yourself too. Yeah, I, 
I think I was just talking with one of my guys about this today. We were talking about, like, yeah, it's just kind of easy to – it's been a long day and I don't feel good, so it's easier to watch TV. Sometimes we just do that and it's like, well, what's the point of watching TV? Well, it's kind of a stress relief. It's like if I do that all the time, every every time, I'm actually probably getting a lot of stress because I'm putting things off and I know I could be doing something else. So it's almost like at a certain point we're actually probably getting quite the opposite thing. So it's like – if I'm trying to avoid feeling down, you know, I watch porn or I drink or whatever it is, I'm probably feeling more and more and more down. Then it kind of feeds that cycle of, well, I need more of it. I need more of it. But yeah, it's just like you were saying, cleaning your room, so to speak. Like if everything's a mess and everything's in disarray, it's probably pretty low odds that I also just feel awesome about myself. It's probably a huge reflection of how I'm feeling internally. I'm not worth it. Mm -hmm. I mean, I could, you know, stop jerking it long enough to go take a shower, but I'm not worth it. I mean, so you clean your room and then you set up goals. You got your short-term goals, your mid-term goals, and your long-term goals. Mm-hmm. And when you're saying, like, so the forgiving yourself helped you work past the I'm not worth it stage. Exactly. Because if you forgive yourself, now you see yourself as a person of worth. And now you are worth it. And so maybe going and taking that shower or whatever it is. So so there's that piece. And another thing I'm going to ask you, and I, again, it's been – a little while since I've talked about your personal life. So I never know what to bring up with like the individuals that you have in your life that you call loved ones. I don't know if it's the same crew of people that that's when I was working with you, but like at, to what degree have you addressed the people in your life now versus then now versus then? Yeah. Like what was your relationship like with those that you were close to then? What's your relationship like with those you're close to now? Well, I would say then I had acquaintances and now I have uh, best friends because I don't have a lot of acquaintances now. I have a core social network. I've got, you know, six people that I know that know me and we all love one another. Same ragtag crew I'm aware of. It is. Yeah, that's that's important, right? You well, know, you have good people around you. Yeah, there's no revolving door. It's us versus the world. Well, I, I bet a big part of that, if, if maybe not the core of that, is I really won't have any deep relationships or deep connections until I start to first have a deep connection with myself. You said going back to forgiving yourself, and obviously I know there was a lot more to that than just saying, oh, I forgive myself. And I think just on a human level, we all can relate to this in some sense of having something we're shameful about, something that we beat ourselves up over, and probably a lot of people, whether they're going through the justice system or not, that would be stuck in that, well, how do you forgive yourself? Like for you, what what was that process? What did forgiving yourself mean? Like what helped you to start to get there? What actually helped to uncover that process well i would start by reading mary shelley's frankenstein because mm-hmm. there's only one real character in that book and it's the monster what's the mar- monster representative of well he, he didn't choose to be born he was created and because of the way that he looked he was mistreated and then he decided no he has more power than he realized so he made himself and it was work and then he decided there were things that he wanted from his life and his creator refused him those things and he pursued him to the edge of the earth for it that's a lot deeper knowledge of frankenstein than i had <laughs> I, I just i, I think of like yeah. herman munster you know yeah. like yeah no yeah you gave the actual uh the the 
there's a lot more to it than a monster book, right? It's so he turns out not to even be the monster, right? right. And then, you know, if you're a Jordan Peterson fan, what 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 does he say about purpose and meaning in in your life? And like, what have you done to what what types of things give you passion? What brings you passion in your life? What brings purpose? What brings meaning? What makes you get up in the morning now comparatively to uh, a decade ago? It's it is it's the people. It's the people that I have around me because other than that, I have stuff. And I mean, I can do a lot with the stuff that I have, but if I don't have anybody to share that with, then there's not, there's no point. Uh, That's good. What other areas do you think we could draw a contrast with kind of the past versus present? I've kind of covered... Uh, hygiene, cleaning your room. Is there, is there any other, uh, the people around you, is there any other glaring areas that stand out like the 2008 Dallas versus the 2018 shiny version? Well, I, other than just surface shallow, you know, just like the, the shadow passing during the day. I mean, that's all I was. It was just a, a gray ghost there's nothing there it was a shell you know you're giving me like flashbacks to our sessions this would happen dude like so i'm talking to justin now but dallas is so smart he would like make these references to like literature or like things and i i'd like i just kind of nod thinking like <laughs> yeah totally. hopefully hopefully you'll keep talking and then like i'll be able to catch on to what he's saying um <laughs> you're, talking, you're talking like the shadow is that so. what the the extended eye contact is yeah totally is I, like, i'm, I'm looking going, keep... i no, i've been pra- i practice my profound look i get this like profound look i'll stroke my beard even and just kind of give you this like knowing nod like i'm doing right now little bit of this meanwhile in my head straight up hamster wheel shit bro like i don't know i'm just waiting like Dude, I've done i hope that. dallas has another thing that's I've gonna done that. like you, you play it off as doing a like purposeful silence that makes them keep talking you just yeah. go yeah. but then i just but really I'm all, what is he talking Yo, about what's he saying <laughs> not in a mean way just like that is over my head what is yeah. he I hope he oh, says I've something else those. that helps me be like, I've yeah, do that. Yeah, I've definitely <laughs> had those. You were faking it that whole time. The whole time, man. I, I, I never knew what you were saying. What I'd do is just, I'd, I'd write down quotes that you had say and then like Google them later and be like, oh, oh, I better read this book before next session. Shit. You know, yeah. I've definitely had those moments. Dallas gave me like a, a book, a list of books to read. And all like these like profound intellectuals and stuff. Yeah. So. No, yeah, I, I, I caught most of what you're saying, Dallas. Just you, you are a bright dude. So sometimes the references you make are just kind of like, oh, yeah, good point, man. <laughs> yeah, smart bastard. Yeah. I tend to keep it brief because you know, I don't, either it is over somebody's head or they're just bored and they're just like, well, shut up. So I give them a chance. Mm. I'm trying to bounce it off. Yeah, never bored. That's for sure. Yeah, you. I mean, you, you. Yeah, you. You impacted me a bit too, man. You, you've. Uh, definitely turned me on to a few different books that i've that i read and expanded my knowledge on stuff i enjoyed our times together man well i know i'm valued because i was your second choice for this 
<laughs> yeah. I mean, I never met Mike, but yeah, Mike's a good guy. Yeah, you, you're second place. Not bad. Not bad. I'll take silver, silver medal. Silver medal. What made you? What made you feel open to doing this? Like when Jeff reached out, doing this kind of a pod? Because that's that's I've got to imagine that's a huge level of vulnerability as well. Yeah, being yeah. willing to come on and talk about that and share your your story. I do actually miss the the intimacy of the group settings and the individual settings and but i i listen i mean i consume i any type of media every type of information i hate people that listen to the same four songs on the radio all day long Mm. i'm constantly learning and i have never heard somebody out there having this conversation and if we can affect one person with this conversation We've done more than our share. You know, I I can promise you that I'm going to hear back from people that I work with that uh, that will be the case. You know, you you uh, you you've got a keen mind. I knew bringing you on here and and, and telling your story would uh, you'd be able to articulate a lot of stuff that you know. One Mace Justin and I. We'll have various guests on that are on maybe the other side of the desk, you know, talking about this line of work. You know, we can we can kind of put things forward. But there's there seems to be a fascination with like your side of things, so to speak, you know, the client side of things. And you're I think you're a pretty damn good representative of somebody that was in a super dark spot and went through a lot of struggles. This this wasn't an easy path for you. Again, I've, I've known you since 2010, dude, you know off and on at least and you you've had fed quite the story and a successful one you know thus far there's some things that you need to keep doing and keep moving through with you know that like what what are your plans like how do you keep the ball rolling you know you're not you didn't cross the finish line maybe you did with APMP but like what what's your how do you keep this so, yeah, that's the thing. APMP was just a dot on a map. That's right. But the map, it turns out, is a sphere. And when you reach that dot, there's always that horizon. It's like, well, okay, good job. Now what? Well, now what? Yeah, I've always mm-hmm. wanted to listen to a f- complete album of music that I wrote and composed. Oh, you do that? Okay, now what? <laughs> I've always yeah. wanted to buy a house. I've always wanted a two-car garage. Okay, now what? Yeah, kind of yeah. like that solving a problem creates a new problem, kind of leads to new problems. Yeah, it's just a series of problems. Until you're dead. Yeah. There is an end. It, it's it's kind of fun to hear you say this. So it, therapists all the time talk about the stages of change. I won't go into too much detail because it's kind of beyond the scope of what we're doing here, but anytime any human animal embarks on the process of creating change in their life. There's some pretty predictable uniform stages they go through. And the first one is like pre-contemplation. This is kind of from addiction therapy. Pre-contemplation is you're not really aware there's a problem. There's, you're not considering changing anything. Everything's fine. Contemplation of course is where it's like, well, yeah, maybe I could change some things. Maybe not. Uh, I don't know. Change is hard. I don't know if I really want to do this, but maybe, then there's like this staging, you know, then there's preparation, action, maintenance, so on and so forth. But the the thing that we try to preach to our clients is to not ever settle into the maintenance phase. The maintenance phase in traditional stage of change uh, 
therapy implies that you've, you know, you've made it. You keep doing these series of things that you've done to get to this point and you should be successful because that's what's got you to be sober. You're saying kind of the now what type mentality. Okay, I got here. You know, again, you went into your, like you said, you know, dots, spheres, horizons. You got all mystical on us. But the point you're saying is awesome, right? You're, you're talking about how you, you get to this point and then, okay, I achieved that. Now what? And then you, you, you just did a series of different now what's that you have in your mind. Right. Well, I mean, the point is, is basically as long as your hands and your mind are occupied, I mean, Buddha became enlightened, and then he decided that wasn't for him anymore, you know? Because huh. enlightenment is an end, but mm-hmm. enlightening is a journey. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I, I think in the in the grand scheme of life, you know, if we talk about, like Jeff was just referencing the stages of treatment, within just a program, you can say, okay, you've reached the maintenance stage, and that's how we quantify on a piece of paper where you're at. In terms of life, I, I I feel like you could almost rename maintenance phase as complacency phase. Like, and I don't yeah. think that's necessarily where we want to be. And going back to the action, like we want to be constantly growing, working on something, and recognizing if I feel like I'm in the maintenance phase, I probably need to change some things or like pursue other things or question where I'm at with things. It's kind of like I said, like on to the next problem. Not that problems can't be a good thing, but it's kind of like. It's almost like the way our culture is set up. Like, if I make $100,000, man, I'll just be happy, and that'll be awesome. Then you get that raise, and it's like, wow, this is awesome. I love this. Two months later, it's kind of boring. Well, maybe if I made 150000 then I would be. It's kind of like I just keep getting to this place where I think there's, like you said, enlightenment. That's like an ending. Like, I reach it, and then once I get here, I'm going to be so happy, and everything's going to be awesome. And it's like, well, wait. Everything's not happy and awesome. Well, what's wrong with me then? What's wrong with my life? So there's that aspect of, I think, looking at it as, like you said, being enlightened. Like you're constantly working towards something. Dude, like in any, either of you can answer this, in any traditional martial art, what's the top rank? Black, Black belt. belt. Black belt. So I, I mean, at the risk of maybe tooting my own horn here, I got my black belt in jujitsu in, it was the summer of, that would have been 2017, 2016. I don't know. Must, anyway, um, when I when I got belted, the, the you know a few of the fellow black belts that I look up to were talking to me about it, and they were saying how that's just the beginning. Hmm. So you know you're so you went through you know in in jujitsu it's white, blue, purple, brown, black, right? And kind of the black belt's the precipice, and kind of the idea that was relayed to me when I got my black belt is that, okay, you, you now have a pretty good proficient general understanding of everything that makes up jujitsu. You're just starting to learn, you know and I'm saying? Well, that, now you've got the muscle memory. Now you yeah, have the reflexes. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And so now that I have those things, like now it's like, it's kind of like I'm off to a good start in learning jujitsu. You know, I've, I've, I've given it the, you know, a good, a good initial effort, but there's so much more to it. And there's so it's a continue. It, it's a, it's a beautiful martial art because it's, it's unending. There's not, there's not a finite number of techniques. There's not a finite number of transitions. There's it's, and there's new stuff being created all the time. And the moment that you feel like, Oh, well got my black belt, made it won a couple tournaments, got a couple medals. Sweet. Okay. Done, man. That's complacency. And that's when you start to slip and get worse. That's when you get rusty. That's when, mm-hmm. that, that's when you have somebody come through and this, this happens to me all the time. Um, I'll have somebody come through that's 
ranked technically lower than me and they'll remind me real quick. I need to stay sharp because I haven't made it at all. There's this, this guy that I grappled with on Sunday. He's been doing it probably under a year. Um, and he, uh, he capitalized on a mistake I made and he, he darst choked me and I had to tap out and I was happy for him and frustrated at myself more happy for him though. Um, but like, it, it's one of those things to where I got complacent, you know, I was going against somebody that on paper I should beat. Typically when I go against him all up until this is the first time he's beat me. Um, I, and you know, maybe I don't want to take anything away from him and act like I, Oh, I just got sloppy because he, he got me fair and square. He really did. Um, but I certainly, next time I go against Kyle, if you, if you're listening, Kyle, I'm coming for you, dude, I'm going to be sharp next time. You know, I'm not going to be complacent. And that's, that's what I, and, and there, there's beauty in that. Right. And I'm, I'm saying that with no actual malice in my tone. I love the guy, you know, and but, but like that, that's kind of the mindset we're talking about here. You know, um, both you gentlemen are, uh, you know, are musicians, uh, you, you guys know, there's not like a top level to that. I mean, who's the, who's the best drummer of all time? Dallas, who do you say? Definitely Lars Ulrich. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> Justin says Lars. Of all time, to. like popular. Well, Neil Peart's got to be Pert's up there. Huge, yeah. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's the drummer's drummer. And yeah. and what would what would Neil Peart say uh, if you said, "Are you done? Have you learned everything there is to know?" What do you think he'd say? I mean, I don't know what he'd I say. I doubt he would agree with that statement. Right. Yeah, I, yeah. I, don't, I mean, I, I would like I would like to know actually. Yeah, I, don't, I, I don't think you'd agree with it. That's how you achieve that level of mastery, though. Yeah, is that you're. You're just omnivorous when it comes to the knowledge. Yeah. You just want more. You know you can do better, so you keep racing your shadow to get it. And so then, when it comes to your own life, you need to have an you need to have an omnivorous, uh, like disposition towards consuming things that are going to make your life kick ass, and keep pushing towards it, finding new passions, new people. Not I mean not necessarily new. You could always enhance existing relationships, whatever, but but continually pressing forward, asking yourself what's next. That's why I caught or sort of tuned into that when you said it, because for me, again, like for, for me, jujitsu is sort of the, the manifestation of that in, in my world. It's always evolving, always changing. And man, it lies not, it never gets boring. You know, there's always something to learn and pay attention because there's a lot of beautiful little things that happen when you're not paying attention and you're just going to miss it. When was the last time you stood outside, you know, after dark and counted the satellites? I don't think I've done that. You've never done that? <laughs> Not counted the satellites? Been I don't a even long know if time. Yeah. I don't even know if I'd recognize the satellite. I, I, I'm, I'm pretty good about when we're not having a ton of light pollution actually bothering to stop and look at the stars, though. I'm getting better at that. Catch a sunrise or a sunset. You know, smell the roses. I mean, really enjoy that coffee. You know, I kind of go like like a mindfulness sort of thing. One thing I've yeah. been doing, like, so you, it, it's weird. It, it's fun to hear you say this, Dallas, because it's something that, when, like, when I drive home, usually I have some type of media going, a podcast or music mm-hmm. or something of like this. Like lately, I get so consumed with all this other stuff that we do in our day to day life. I'll just drive home with the windows down and just listen to the breeze. And it's like that might sound cheesy or whatever it is, but there's something that's like so damn calming about it. Oh yeah. When I go for a run, you know, like Justin and I are training for this nasty race coming up here in a few weeks and like 
usually I've got music or a podcast going, but, but sometimes if I'm outside, you know, if I'm on a treadmill, forget it. But if I'm outside, put my music on pause and just kind of look around while I'm running, you know, we have beautiful landscape, beautiful surroundings, the place where I train to run gorgeous. So when you're talking about enjoy your coffee, yeah, don't slug it down to get the caffeine into your system as quickly as possible. Although that's a priority first thing in the morning, but also taste that (laughs) shit, right? Well, life is a lot of work, but you can't be creative if you don't enjoy yourself. Don't forget to make time. Well, and go back to your, when we were talking a moment ago about referencing the the Frankenstein thing, I think you, you nailed it really well tying it into that as far as life is difficult and will always be difficult. There's no way around that. But it's almost like all these events around us and all these things are going to happen no matter what. There's there's just a certain amount of this we don't have control over. But I do have control over how I how I choose to view those things. How it, you know the t- the kind of meaning I choose to give to those things. Like say my car runs out of gas, I could be pissed off that I got to walk to the gas station and be late for it, or I can choose to. Well, now I can kind of go for a nice walk today. I can look at the sunset. I am going to be late to work. But there's there's no right or wrong in those. Just what feelings come along with them. But I think that's the ultimate thing of how many things go on all day that I just totally blow by me and I don't even stop to even notice that, hey, that's actually pretty cool to notice that where some people are so caught up, like Jeff was saying, we can get so caught up, and especially today with technology and just the constant stream of information. Just, distraction. Oh, yeah. Device distraction. Just deciding at some point, okay, I'm going to look away from that. I'm just going to enjoy this freaking tree growing out here. I'm just going to stop and look at this for a minute, whatever it is. Hold your phone out in a crowded place and just look around just so you can blend in just so you're holding your phone <laughs> yeah, out yeah, there, no, no kidding so nobody's like yeah, no so thinks you're not a weirdo. To suspicion yeah. <laughs> and look yeah. i mean look in your rearview mirror that woman is on her phone while she's driving don't break checker <laughs> like yeah <laughs> we are so distracted if you well, don't yeah. take the time yeah. oh absolutely well i was noticing this i was out with my family we were having dinner the other night but just how often all of us, I mean, I'm guilty too, would just pull out a phone and check. And so I was like, well, what was the point of coming to the stairs so we could spend time with each other? And then what are we doing? Checking stuff that no matter what you convince yourself of does not need to be checked right now. It can wait. In the meantime, you're giving away seconds of somebody who, once they're probably gone, you'll be thinking, I wish I had that time back. And well, instead I was using it to check, oh, is there anything new in my email? Like, And you're sending them the signal that they're less important than your device. Yeah. Which is crazy because that's, that's never the intention, but that's a message it sends. Absolutely. It, I feel like more and more people are having this exact conversation, though. So maybe we'll... The, there will hopefully be a social trend that... I think the tide's slowly... It seems more and more people are having this exact other, conversation. Yeah. I, I, I know for me that's been coming up more with just people I know, whether it's at work and personal life, where people are starting to notice, yeah, this is becoming a little much. And it is. I mean, at least for me, I've, I've started to step away from Facebook and all that stuff more just for that reason, because I think it intrudes on everything, but also just I don't like the constant onslaught of advertising and stuff. It just gets to be... It's invasive. And I think not only in interactions, but just with yourself. Like, what is wrong with walking up to a, a, like, going to order at a restaurant and the fact that there's a line? Okay, stand in line, be bored for a minute. And just like you were saying, maybe you don't even need to be bored. Like, maybe something cool is going on. I can look at something cool, like a painting or whatever. He's picking his nose and eating it. Look at him. (laughs) Way better than seeing how many likes you got on the stupid ass picture you posted, right? Oh, yeah, you just start to miss yeah. out on things. That that was one reason when I started getting into snowboarding four or five years ago. That was the part of it I liked is you purposely are going away from everything going on down here, and then you would just sit there and, like, 
listen to the wind blowing by just feeling how cold it is like seeing somebody else there was a there was a big part of that almost forces you to be mindful because you can't learn how to snowboard while you're just thinking about doing a bunch of other stuff and doing something else so it was really cool to me it's like whoa this is cool like all my problems just stayed way down in the valley and i got to get away from it but that that was a big thing for me and i've been trying to do that with more things now just because i'm just as guilty as anyone where just this because i can check something all the time means i check stuff all the time and you're just missing out on everything at the same time it's kind of like we were talking about like the more i try to be a part of everything the less i'm a part of everything it's like the the law of opposites. It was the more in, I try to be a part of everything, the less I become a part of everything. Yeah, sure. I yeah. think there. I think there's a, a lot of truth. The more I try to get done, the less I get done. It's kind of that whole opposite sort of thing. You know, and maybe just kind of tie it back around to the topic at hand. The if you're not able to take a break away from all this stuff, it 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 does get easy to get trapped into the cycle that you described for us, Dallas, back in 2008. You know. It, 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 we didn't have near the social media presence uh, then as we do now, but the, a lot of the folks coming through this program cannot set their phone down. And it's, you know, again, maybe, maybe this conversation helps. I don't know. I, I know that I've been a, I'm a hypocrite. I definitely been on my phone, but I, I've made a conscious effort. You know, I sat down Facebook for a while. Well, it's hard not to. It's almost yeah. a necessity at this point to have some sort of connectedness. Like you almost have to like how many, like we, we probably deal with this all the time. Dallas, I'm sure you ran into this whole thing, but guys that I have that have an internet restriction that are trying to find work, I would seriously say almost impossible, not impossible, <laughs> but almost. Cause most places are like, yeah, just go online. You got to go online. Not many things are done the old school way. Like I, th- I think we are, way too entrenched in our technology we can back it up but it's almost like on some level you almost have to have it but i think we take it too far and then it goes off into more of like being bored you know or just this Mm -hmm. constant instant gratification even if instant gratification is just oh anybody else posted a picture of their food for today let me check what am i missing out on so it's like (laughs) jeff said it's a con it's like a constant effort you have to be making the effort not to do it because it is autopilot that's dragging that thing out of your pocket and Mm -hmm. putting it right up that's what got me into this mess the autopilot yeah so you have to be completely aware of what your hands and your mind are doing that's a good point that's the trick. That's a good point. I, when uh, when the soul, I would say recently with me, within the last year of just being aware of like social media, really how intrusive it all is, I think a couple months ago I was deciding, eh, I'm really going to start to lay off. I'm really going to start to lay off Facebook. And I think what bothered me was once I started to, how much it bothered me to not constantly be checking it, that oh, I was yeah. that tempted to check it all the time is actually what really bugged me. Okay, this is a problem. I had to uninstall it. Yeah, you phone. have to because yeah. it's too easy. Yeah, it's just that and it started making me question myself. I'm like, man, how many other things do I do that, I, that are seemingly okay just because I do it all the time? I'm like, man, this is it's really caused me to like examine myself the last little bit. Like how many things do I probably just do out of habit and I accept as okay just because I do them out of habit? Like that's what, that's what bothered me at the Facebook thing. I was like, how many times do I probably check that in a day at, at like the peak of it? I'm like, that's I kind of wonder if not like, good. The the versions of ourselves from like fifteen years ago could come back and like <laughs> would we be like God those dudes are weirdos man what the hell did they turn into yeah you know what I mean like having your phone out they don't even 7. talk to each other like they just they're showing each other <laughs> memes on their phone like you, yeah. you know what I mean I, I probably would have made fun of who we are today it might have been Jordan Peterson I can't remember who it was he was joking about this it was on Rogan's podcast where he talked about how how many things are 
are acceptable now because it's on a, a phone or a tablet. He said, what if you had a friend that everywhere he went, he just carried a huge box of Polaroids and wanted to show them all to you. Like, look what I ate yesterday. Look what I did. You would think he was an idiot. But if it's on your phone, you're like, oh, yeah, dude, show me. But it would be annoying if you had to do that. Like, yeah. he carried around pictures and physically showed them to you. You'd be like, dude, what a weirdo. He shows you a picture of his food. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, look here's my dog yesterday. Here's my dog. Like, okay, well, we get it. In 1984, George Orwell's, uh, you know, the double speak. Yeah. Mm hmm. Where everything's abbreviated, you can't even form a concept. LOL. Yeah. <laughs> Man, Orwell hit on that, didn't he? He knew stuff in the 40s. Didn't he write 1984 and like 1940 something? I think it was 37. I could That's be wrong about crazy. that. You want me to Google it real quick? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 go, yeah, look that up. yeah, go to your phone yeah. real quick. Yeah. Yeah. Jeez. Well, tying this back in before we wrap up, Dallas, I was going to I was gonna ask you, because one of the things with our podcast that's pretty cool is we get a lot of students listening to this, like future therapists going into the, fu- fu- into the field, can't talk today, or people just curious about it. But what would you say, going to the, the route of students and things like that or other therapists, from your perspective, what is something that's really helpful? Like what's, a, what's a, an approach that a therapist can use or something about them that can be really helpful that makes you feel like, hey, I can be honest, this, this actually helped me to open up? Or just advice kind of someone maybe that's in the field or looking to get into the field, what would you, what I, would you give them? I don't know how you guys do what you do because this is not a job. This is not a career. It's, it's a calling Like, either you have the communication skills and the empathy to do your job or you don't. Mm -hmm. If you know you don't, pick a job. Pick a career. Mm -hmm. Become a lawyer, you know. That's a pretty profound statement, man. So let's let's say someone feels like they have that calling. They really do want to help. What's a... Maybe some therapist, whether it's Jeff or someone else, what's what are some things they've done that you feel like like their own personal approach that has helped you? Well, it's the, it's the empathy. It's the give a shit, you know, the, Mm -hmm. you, you can't fake that. You can't fake compassion and caring and a sense of humor. Mm -hmm. Cause I don't know. There was, there was a intern in a group that I had here and it just seemed like she was she didn't know what to do or you know she was new obviously i'm not saying she didn't have it but it just one there and so the kind of the but the a combination of empathy and humor and give a shit and i somehow tricked you into thinking that i know that wasn't <laughs> an admission <laughs> Yeah, of course I care about you. All right, give me the laptop. I'm taking this. All right, sweet. (laughs) Well, I think there's an important thing you said there, and I found myself when I was first getting out of school and getting into the field and stuff, I was really critical of myself of, like, I'm going to say the wrong thing or I'm going to do the wrong thing. And I've definitely learned on my end. It's it's nice to hear that because there would be times where I feel like I, I messed up or did the wrong thing and I'd have to tell somebody. And really what came through to them was, like, wow, that's awesome. You're even willing to say that you were wrong or that you messed up. And I think that's the biggest thing with human nature. It's okay to mess up. None of us are perfect. But I think overall, I agree with you. Your intentions are going to show through that. Well, the humility is a big one, too. Yeah. 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 Well, dang, anything else you want to add? Or, I mean, you know, your motivation for coming on was nobody's having conversations like this. I don't want you to... I don't want you to miss a chance to get anything else out there that you want to say. 
no um I'll be the vermin to for this this conversation. <laughs> vermin, vermin to victory. Vermin's to victory. Dallas is a rat. We'll focus on the victory side. Yeah, yeah. but I, I, I appreciate you coming on. I know Jeff does too. It happens a conversation at a time. Someone listening to a podcast at a time. Clients listen to this or students listen to this. I agree with you. I, I think this is something that definitely needs to get more of a mainstream conversation going so it's not so taboo it's not so off topic but that's just how we do it just one conversation at a time but and on as much as technology is a pain in the ass like there is that side that makes this stuff more accessible when it's used that way absolutely that's a big part of it because I've, I've learned that doing what i do is just usually a one-on-one conversation with most people are pretty understanding and pretty shocked at how things really go and what people really go through in this thing and so it's, i think it's when we're left to whether it's clickbait headlines or whatever it is, people just trying to write stories and just people not being educated on a topic leads to a lot of assumptions. Like we were talking about how certain things are worded leads to a lot of assumptions when most people, I feel like on a one-on-one basis, we're all dealing with our own stuff. We all know we have our own demons and things that we beat ourselves up over. And I I think that there's almost a small part of people that starts to come out where they kind of do root for the underdog. You know, in this case, like someone that is a felon or someone that's gone through the system because they they kind of know deep down they have their own stuff too. So sometimes it's comforting to see, hey, somebody else deals with something too, and it's actually okay for them to talk about it. That's one reason I think it's really cool that you're willing to come on because it's one one thing that we, we can get on here as therapists and say, yeah, it's okay to go through this. It's normal. Be honest. But when someone has walked the walk, you know, can actually go through it and say, yeah, I've come out on the other side. I've learned how to do my own thing. I've learned how to be honest and that it actually helps. And I think that paints a really, a really – detailed clear picture for people that can get a better understanding for it as i said i think it hits home more when it comes from from you as someone that's going through it it was the best worst thing that ever happened to me yeah it really was i'll tell you what you uh feel like you represented yourself well you know i'm i think you're a great example and and a good man i appreciate you coming on well you're very welcome and you fellas have a good night all right thanks thanks man Alrighty, that does it for this episode of the podcast. Nothing really cool to say here. Check us out on Facebook. Check us out Twitter, Instagram. I don't know what we got going on. Gorilla Social Work Podcast. That's G-U-E-R-R-I-L-L-A. Gorilla Social Work. And if you have any questions, any comments, also feel free to email us at Gorilla Social Work Podcast at gmail.com. Other than that, we will see you on the next episode.